Well, howdy, Huda Thunkers. This is the host of the Huda Thunker podcast coming at you, episode 163, titled, Where Did I Put That Nuke? Alright, before we get into it, I have a little announcement. I've talked about mead before in the podcast. It's wine made with water, honey, and yeast. Last year, I made about 50 to 60 bottles worth of mead. That might be an exaggeration. Maybe it's like 40 bottles. I gave them away. I drank quite a lot of them. I served them at parties as like a mead sangria mix thing, braggot thing. You know, it was a whole year. Most of them are gone. <laughs> There's probably like a dozen left. The tw- uh, 2022 bottles were not the best. I skipped uh, the step that checks the alcohol content. So if you drank it, you had no idea. But they're usually around 10 to 13% anyway. And only siphoned them once, which, you know, siphoning is where you take it from the thing that you originally put all the ingredients in and then put it into the bottle. I only did that once. It left a lot of dead yeast at the bottom of each bottle. Well, this past weekend, my beautiful wife, her twin sister, and her fiancé kindly helped me start the 2023 batch. I'm really excited. We put away about eight gallons of mead all together. There is a five-gallon bucket of honey and maple syrup. Added uh, some orange zest to that one. There's a two-gallon bucket of agave nectar and honey, which I'm going to try. I don't... When you, ma- when you mix maple syrup and honey, it's called acerglin. It gives it its own name. I don't know if there's an agave nectar and honey name, uh, if it has its own special name. But anyway, I did look it up. It is a thing, so we'll see how that tastes. And one gallon jug of mead, just watered honey, that Shannon wanted to spice with some mulling wine mix that she had gotten as a gift from someone. So, yeah, three different batches comes out to eight gallons in total. Now, this has nothing to do with today's topic, nothing to do with today's recommendation. It's just I really like making mead. It's an exciting thing, hobby of mine, and I look forward to this year's batch uh, a lot more than last year. So for last year's batch, I didn't really want to gift too much because of the meat, the dead yeast in each bottle. You know, if you shook it, you know, if that yeast was disturbed in any way, like you shook the bottle or just turned it over lightly, it would get like cloudy and it would also affect the taste, making it kind of sour and gross. So I didn't want to give those out because you don't want to give someone a gift with like a whole bunch of instructions. Now wait a year and never, never move it. Just keep it there. And then when you go to pour it, try not to tilt it too much. (laughs) Didn't make sense. So this year I plan to double siphon, uh, which should eliminate that problem of the yeast and should be ready to be uh, gifted by Christmas. And I'm excited to give it away. Um, And I'm also excited that my wife Shannon seems to be a little bit more invested um, or she's, you know, willing to help me. So fun, fun stuff. Enough of that. Now for the recommendation segment. Hoorah! This week I recommend you watch Mer People on Netflix. That's <laughs> M-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. I believe it's written as one word, uh, Mer People. And yeah, it's great. I did not expect to like this Mer People show very much, but Shane and I were delight- delightfully surprised. I just Googled it. Yes, Mer People, one word. <laughs> I Googled it while talking. Here's the Google's here's Google's super short description. The world of underwater performers who have turned their love of mythical sea creatures into real world careers. That's it. And it's a lot of different kinds of careers. They talk about past, present, future, what's gonna happen, all that. And it's goofy. Now hear me out. I I I press play on this four part documentary show to get some laughs. I thought it'd be fun to laugh at these people. I'm not a saint. I do enjoy watching shows or videos online to laugh at others. I mean, most do. That's why it fails. People falling down, people getting kicked in the nuts. They're popular because people like to laugh at others. It's not the nicest thing to do, but when it's a show, you're the one putting it out in the world, so I don't feel as bad. 
bad about laughing at it. I thought a documentary about people dressing up as mermaids would only be entertaining via laughter. I thought I'd only like it if I was able to laugh at them, but I was wrong. While the show's first uh, episode opens with some comedic tones and editing, you know, there's like little goofy sound bites added during mermaid performances that really makes you think, oh, the people making this don't want you to take it seriously. They want you to laugh too. That reinforced my belief that the show was meant to be funny, meant to laugh at these people. But by the end of the episode four, the final episode, Shannon and I were getting emotional. I'm not joking. Over these people in their lives. I expected to laugh as, as I laugh at horse people, you know? If you haven't heard about the people that ride toy stick horses in competitions, you're missing out. It's uh, bizarre and funny. But these mer people all seem to be connected to, connected to this way of life. They're mostly rejects, outcasts from the, our society that found something that they are deeply passionate about and they care about. And a lot of them, it like saved their lives. Some of them are like, I was suicidal. You know, people made fun of me or a lot of them, you know, there was a, a quite a large LGBTQIA plus plus. I, I don't know the acronym LGBT community in this mer people stuff. And a lot of them are like, well, my parents rejected me. They didn't reject or they didn't accept me for who I am. You know, one, one person is non-binary, so they go as they, them. Blick Tsunami. I like Blick Tsunami. Blick Tsunami was like, yeah, my mom didn't uh, accept me, so I became this. <laughs> and Blick Tsunami is this fabulous, you know, mer person. It's it's cool. Um, yeah. And uh, they become passionate about it. And that just so happens to be strapping their legs into these huge silicon fish tails and swimming in surprisingly dangerous performances. It look it's crazy scary how they did it. They talk about this one place called Wigiwachi, which is it's been around since I guess this 1947 it was, is when it opened. It's a spring, a natural spring in Florida that they have these mermaid be, mermaids swim around, right? Well, episode 1, Shannon and I were like, "What the heck?" They, when we found out in order to get into this spring for their performances, they drop down a 16-foot cement tube, okay? And it's like just a couple lights in there and like one pole to guide you. While you, Remember, your their feet are completely bound. They go down this 16 feet. Then they go through a 60-foot um, horizontal cement tube, 60-foot, to come out towards the bottom of this spring. So then they have to swim high up, or there is a little spot at the bottom that they do have some compressed air so you can get a breath before you go to the surface because you just swam through you know, 70 feet of, of concrete tunnel. And I was like, this is so dangerous. And one lady's like, yeah, one day the air compressor didn't work. So I came out of this you know, 70-foot tunnel. It's real scary. None of us liked it. Went into the compressed air and was like, hmm, there's no air in here. I better swim it to the top. The guest thought it was weird. I was gasping for air at the top. I'm supposed to be a mermaid. <laughs> I'm like, this is nuts. You almost died, lady, in order to be in a mermaid show. <laughs> so there's a lot more to it than just laughing at people for wanting to be mermaids. It's a good show, and I, I really recommend it. We binged it in two days, so fun. Now, for the main event, and I'm talking about that other stuff. Uh, main event, back in November of 2022, I released episode 138 titled Philly Bombed Itself. Um, it's about a cult-like group in the city of Philadelphia that was firebombed, and I was surprised to do to do the episode because, oh, inspired to do the episode because I was a bit shocked that a, a law enforcement agency bombed its own city intentionally, Philadelphia. Well, this episode is about another time the U.S. dropped bombs on U.S. soil, but it was not intentional. In a uh, B-52 Strato Fortress bomber was cruising over the American East Coast on January 23rd of 1961. It was carrying two thermonuclear Mark 39 bombs. National Archives Pieces of History writes, Keep 19, a Boeing B-52G-95BW Strato Fortress with the 
4241 or 4241st Strategic Wing was on a 24-hour airborne alert mission off the Atlantic coast of the United States. At the time, while the U.S. and the Soviet Union were engaged in the Cold War, the Strategic Air Command kept B-52 bombers armed with nuclear warheads flying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Pause in the, in the uh, quotation of that thing there. I did not know that at a point in time in the 60s, B-52 bombers armed with nuclear warheads flew nonstop around the U.S., that's crazy, and how much money did that cost? I'm always thinking about the money. What the heck? How much taxes? Went? Anyway, the plane was commanded by Major Walter S. Tulloch, U.S. Air Force, with pilots Captain Richard W. Hardin and First Lieutenant Adam C. Maddox. It was armed with two Mark 39 thermonuclear bombs, which uh, each with an explosive yield of three to four megatons. The Mark 39 was a two-stage radiation implosion thermonuclear bomb produced from 1957 to 1959 with more than 700 built. It was fully fused, meaning it could be detonated by contact with the ground as an air burst or laydown. A series of parachutes would slow the bomb and it would touch down on its target before detonating, allowing the bomber to ta- uh, bomber time to get clear of the blast zone. That's the end of the quote there. That's... Uh... Crazy, and that they flew 24-7 with these bombs that sound very scary. And I also want to point out the names of these dudes. Uh, Major Walter S. Tulloch, Captain Richard W. Hardin, and Lieutenant Adam C. Maddox. Those are some badass <laughs> early 20th century names. I don't know, they just sound very manly American names, and I'm very proud of our boys. <laughs> During its flight, it had a fuel leak, and then it started to fall apart in the air. The plane carrying nuclear weapons was doomed to crash, and it crashed over the town of Goldsboro, North Carolina. While the B-52 fueled in flight uh, from an air tanker, the tanker's crew notified Major Tulloch that the B-52's right wing was leaking fuel. The leak was pretty bad. With more than 5,400 gallons, or 37,000 pounds of jet fuel, lost lost in less than three minutes, as the B-52 was directed to return to Seymour, John- Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina to attempt an emergency landing. Sorry, I'm having a hard time talking today. The plane carrying nuclear weapons was doomed to crash, and it crashed over the town of Goldsboro, North Carolina. And, uh, yeah, let's talk about Goldsboro, North, North Carolina real quick. Just a little, just a little setting. Our first setting is up in the air over the east coast of the America of America, but now let's talk about our second setting, where it crashed. Goldsboro, North Carolina today has a population of 32,000. It's at uh, 108 feet elevation, so not very high off the ground. If you've driven through North Carolina, a lot of it's really flat. Uh, the From GoldsboroNC.com, the city of Goldsboro is the home of Seymour Johnson Air Force Base and famous for the best barbecue in eastern North Carolina. We are a destination with rich culture and heritage roots, which captivates visitors and residents alike. I got that when I Googled, what is Goldsboro, North Carolina known for? That's what it gave me. That's what Google gave me. I might argue that Goldsboro, North Carolina is most known for uh, having two nukes dropped on top of it. But hey, that's just me. <laughs> I feel like, the, I feel like the, the city council of Goldsboro is like, yeah, let's move away from that. We don't want people visiting finding out they can't go see the nukes or whatever. So <laughs> let's talk Let's talk about our heritage roots and, and uh, our, uh, you know, best barbecue east of North Carolina, in eastern North Carolina. Now let's talk about the bombs. I talked about it a little bit, but um, 
little scary facts back there, but let's get a little bit more nitty gritty. It's a little bit more important to see this. The Mark 39 was considered a lightweight weapon. <laughs> lightweight. Weighing 6,500 pounds to 6,750 pounds. If that's lightweight, man, I don't need to cut back on the Cheez-Its. I'm doing just fine. No. Sorry, that was a corny dad joke. I'm not even a dad yet. And the bomb measured approximately 12 feet in length. So 6,500, 6,700 feet or pounds and 12 feet long with a diameter of almost three feet. The explosive yield of the Mark 39 was 3.8 megatons. That is 250 times the explosive power of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So 250 times one of the most horrific events in modern history yeah, crazy. And enough to vaporize everyone and everything within a 17-mile radius, roughly the area inside the Capitol Beltway around Washington, D.C. The pilots of the B-52 Strato Fortress bomber lost control of the aircraft. One of the bombs accidentally ejected. Little whoopsie there. We lost that one. Thankfully, the parachute attached to the thermonuclear bomb deployed as designed. Bomb one gently floated through the air and got tangled in some trees. So that was actually pretty good. That's probably the best case scenario. Never a bomb that can be detonated by dropping by hitting ground, never touch the ground. So that's that's good. Bomb one were okay, but there's a second one. Bomb number two did not eject. It remained on the aircraft as it crashed and was submerged beneath mud. And one source said 20 feet of mud and then that uh, Pieces of History website I saw said, quote, slammed into a muddy field at over 700 miles per hour and buried itself more than 180 feet deep. That's way cooler than saying, yeah, it went about 20 feet of mud. So I don't know which one's true, but the cooler one usually is not true. However, they had a lot of good stats, so who knows? Anyway, 700 miles per hour. Just try to imagine that. A, a 6,500-pound, 12-foot-long bomb just flying at 700 miles per hour, just going right into your cornfield. I would like to imagine some hillbilly in North Carolina just sitting, straw hat, rocking back on his on his rocking chair, sitting out on front, maybe smoking a little, his, his pipe, you know, smoking some, some tobacco. And he looks out and he goes, dang it, Janine, get out here. You, you got to see this. There's a dot up in the sky. I just saw something explode up there, and now there's a dot coming from it. And holy boom, just run right into the mud. No explosion, but it hit the mud. That's crazy. As they descended, the unbalanced condition created by the disproportionate fuel load made the bomber increasingly difficult to maneuver. <clears throat> the bomber went out of control as the right wing, right wing was sheared away, and Major Tullock ordered the crew to abandon the imperiled aircraft. That's got to be, I know it sounds, maybe, you know, if your plane's falling apart, it's like abandon easy decision and um, military guys are trained to make decisions real quickly but think about it i know he's in charge but major tolix just ordered his crew to abandon an aircraft that is carrying two nuclear bombs that, that can vaporize 17 miles radius and then you know a lot bigger shock wave and radiation basically just destroying like half of the east coast he said yeah abandon this we got to give up boys that's 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 good decision making. Five crewmen ejected and one climbed out of the uh, out through the top hatch before the B-52 broke apart and exploded in air. Its wreckage covered a roughly two square mile area and sadly three crewmen, Major Shelton and Richards and Sergeant um, Barnish, were killed. This was happening three days after President JFK, John F. Kennedy, took office. So stakes are high. Cold War's on. You know, just a mishap, a leak. Maybe some dude somewhere building this plane didn't put a bolt in right and we had a leak. Or maybe when they were getting that in-air fuel from the air tanker, they something went wrong. 
crazy. There is a top secret document that goes over this a little bit. I do have that on the blog. I'm not going to read it. It's boring, boring bureaucrat talk. So, but it, it, you know, it's cool. Top secret document. I got it. Fortunately, the safety mechanism worked and neither bomb detonated. Despite coming date, well, <laughs> that's not really much of a spoiler alert. I feel like if two nuclear bombs exploded new- on U.S. soil, you wouldn't need to listen to a podcast about it. It'd be all over the place. <laughs> you would definitely heard of, of, it, of it by now. Now, despite dangerously close to exploding, they did not. A forensic investigation found that five out of the six safety switches on the first bomb had triggered inadvertently. So that one that dangled, it was dangling in the trees. I got a picture of it dangling in the trees on the blog. Didn't explode, but five out of six safety mechanisms were gone. There's just one little safety mechanism hanging on, and that's the only reason North Carolina is still here. The final switch had not prevent had wait wait five out of the six safety switches on the first bomb had triggered inadvertently. Here's a very important comma in this next sentence: the final switch had not comma preventing the device from exploding <laughs> if you read it without the comma the final switch had not preventing the device from exploding so <laughs> i did that a couple of times when <laughs> when excavators located the second bomb bomb number two the one in the mud 700 miles per hour 180 feet deep the safety switch was off and the, the device was set to arm <laughs> had the fail safes not worked correctly a nuclear explosion equivalent to nearly 8 million tons of TNT might have devastated the eastern North Carolina town of Goldsboro and surrounding vicinity. And yeah, Goldsboro, there were probably a plaque somewhere in Washington, D.C. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, Goldsboro and all you people. But yeah, sorry, we dropped one. News of the crash shocked the small farming community, especially as they learned of its deadly cargo. However, information about how close the bombs came to detonation remained classified until 2013. That's why people were talking about it now, but you didn't hear about it in the 80s. When a FOIA request by command and control author Eric Schlosser uh, revealed additional details about the bomb's safety mechanisms. And I got pictures of guys digging out that second bomb, but uh, the the where... It gets a little crazier. To reduce the risk of accidental or unauthorized nuclear detonation, newly elected President JFK ordered a reduction of strategic air command alert activity and the installation of permission or permissive action links, PLAs, which required a secret code to activate a nuclear bomb. So JFK rolled that back a bit. Hey, we don't have to fly it all the time. And, you know, let's make it a little bit harder to activate these things. A mishap like this involving the loss of nuclear weapons is known as the known by the military code name Broken Arrow, which is also the name of a cool 90s movie starring John Travolta and Christian Slater about nuclear weapons being taken hostage. So that's pretty cool. Check out that movie. I remember watching it at my, my buddy's place. Uh, Broken Arrow, fun movie. Uh, so yeah, this is known as a Broken Arrow. Official statements indicate that there was no danger of the bombs exploding, while others indicate that five of the, of the six steps required for a thermonuclear detonation did occur. And, um, yeah, recovery of the buried bomb proved to be challenging. But after eight days, the ordnance team had recovered most of the bomb, including the 92 detonators and conventional explosive lenses of the primary, uh, of the primary, the first stage implosion section. Jargon, I don't understand nuclear bombs, but they, they got most of it. The uranium-235 plutonium-239 pit, the very core of the bomb, was recovered on January 29th. The secondary, however, was never found. <laughs> uranium pit of a nuclear bomb, one of them found, the other one never found. 
And that's where I'm ending it. Ending moon, <laughs> main part. There's a nuclear core somewhere in North Carolina. How fun. Some earthworms have been like evolved way too much because <laughs> they keep, they live around this nuclear core. Uh, just some crazy thought I had. And now there was another source for this uh, podcast. I did mainly uh, from the arms controlcenter.org and the other one was that pieces of history website uh, the national geographic did do an article on this but as you might remember from past episodes national geographic pre- uh, requires a subscription of which i do not have <laughs> and i'm not going to pay for it because i don't make enough money off this podcast uh, but anyway they do this thing where they let you read a couple paragraphs before you have to pay so here's nat geo the amount of article that i could read before nat geo asked me for money billy reeves remembers that night on january 1961 as unseasonably warm, even the north, even for North Carolina. But it got a lot hotter just before midnight when the walls of his room became glowing red with the strange light streaming through his window. I was just getting ready for bed, Reeve said, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, what in the world? What in the world? The 17-year-old ran out to the porch of his family's farmhouse just in time to see a flaming B-52 bomber, one wing missing, fiery debris rocketing off in all directions, plunge from the sky and plow into a field barely a quarter mile away. Just like I described earlier, the guy in his rocking chair. Quote, everything around here was on fire, says Reeves, now 78, standing with me in the middle of that same field, comma, couldn't read the rest of the article, I had to pay like 20 bucks a month or whatever it was for the subscription. So that was fun. That's crazy. Some guy actually saw saw the thing explode. Oh, dang it. Look at that, Mom and Pa. There's a, there's a plane in the air. <laughs> that He had no idea how much danger he was in. Uh, but being that close, quarter mile away, at least he wouldn't have felt anything if they did go off. And last, the inspiration for this post was a Reddit, <laughs> Reddit video. It was actually really funny. It says the U.S. military, after losing track of six nuclear bombs, which I thought it was just two, but um, <laughs> and the comments were talking about all the other ones, but uh, it was a video of that that music video. Don't put the blame on me, because basically the U.S. military was like, yeah, we're gonna say we lost it, but it was in danger, and just you know, don't bring it up again. Be cool. <laughs> That's. That's how the U.S. military responded. Anyway, that's what happened. That's my episode 163 on Where Did I Put That Nuke? Hope you enjoyed Hootathunkers. Tune in next week. (laughs) 